Thanks for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com. I'm fortunate to have some sponsors supporting the show whose products I genuinely love and recommend. I'll start with a word on those so the rest of the episode will have no interruptions. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura Ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura Ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. This episode is brought to you by Levels. Levels uses continuous glucose monitoring to track your blood sugar in real time. It allows me to see the impact that everything I do has on my metabolic health so that I can optimize my diet and exercise accordingly. Wearing the Levels patch, I feel like I'm living in the future. There's this moment when you raise your phone to the back of your arm, it vibrates and shows your glucose level right on the screen. It's this instantaneous look inside yourself, an in-the-moment snapshot of what's going on inside your body. And while it's only showing one simple measurement for now, it's enough for me to see the future. And that's exciting. It's exciting because I believe that we can live meaningfully longer and healthier lives than we do today. And I believe technologies like Levels will help us to get there. Levels is currently running an exclusive beta program with a wait list of over 100,000 people. But you can skip the line and join Levels today by using my link in the show notes. Levels.link slash Jake. Again, that's levels.link slash Jake. Okay, let's get into it. Thank you, John, for coming on and taking the time today. It's really great to get to talk to you. Uh, You are a senior television anchor at Bloomberg News, also co-host of Bloomberg Markets in the Open, um, and you're also a correspondent and anchor at CTV National News, which, for those who don't know, is uh, the number one news organization in Canada. Uh, and you're also prolific on social media. That's how I discovered you um, on Twitter. You've got a few hundred thousand followers there and uh, several hundred thousand likes on TikTok as well, where you do some funny stuff, um, some interesting stuff with the markets and tends to be tweets and TikToks around sort of investing and business and um, technology and things like this. So really enjoyed your content over the years and and very excited to be on the podcast with you today. I think the best place to get started would be for those who don't know you. um, If you could start by just sort of telling your story from as early as you're willing to start to uh, where you are today and and some of the decisions you made along the way. Well, thanks for having me, Jake. I'm a big fan of the pod and um, I'm joining you from Toronto in Canada where I grew up. Um, I'm a Toronto kid and I always had an interest in media. Uh, watched a lot of TV growing up, thought that would be a cool career. Getting into news was not something that I necessarily wanted to do, but I was a big consumer of news. I was a big consumer of business news too. As I got older, I was interested in you know how the world worked and money plays a big part in that. And um, when I was in college, I thought, how can I get into that world? 
I had initially thought I'd become a film producer. Um, maybe saw myself wearing like a long robe, uh, maybe have a pipe, you know, uh, one of these Hollywood producer types. Actually, here in Canada, um, especially in, in cities like Toronto and Vancouver over the years, and, and, and definitely in the time that I was growing up, you saw a lot more film and TV production. And I liked the business side of that. And I thought that would be a cool career. So I started working a little bit in that in the summertime while I was doing, um, at least in college, I was doing a degree in, in economics. And um, through that process, I realized how slow it is to make movies. Um, and, uh, and, and meanwhile, there was uh, a TV channel starting in this market in Canada that was uh, going to try to uh, grab some real estate uh, on, the, on the cable dial um, alongside you know, U.S. players like CNBC. Um, and I had this background with numbers and I had this interest in media and they didn't have uh, necessarily a job available that I would be uh, suited for because I had no real TV experience. But um, I kind of knocked on the door and um, said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And they said, well, uh, we definitely need those kinds of people. And so that's how I got initially into business TV. And long story short, it's almost 25 years later. I can't believe I'm saying that, Jake, but that is that is the truth. And along the way, I mean, I started working um, right around the time that uh, felt somewhat similar to today. It was the internet bubble uh, and the subsequent bursting of that bubble. Um, got a shot to eventually go in front of the camera. I worked a lot as a producer. So I kind of learned the industry before I started doing television as a, whatever you want to call it, a reporter, an anchor, that kind of stuff. Had an opportunity to go to New York and cover the markets there uh, for my channel. Um, uh, ended up going to Bloomberg uh, in New York, which was uh, a really exciting opportunity. Um, and within a couple of years of taking that job at Bloomberg, we found ourselves <laughs> in another interesting market situation, which turned out to be the Great Recession. And so I spent a lot of time during my years in New York for Bloomberg, covering the ups and downs of what was happening uh, in the stock market. I spent many a day uh, during um, those turbulent times on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, you'd see such dramatic declines. I know sometimes it feels like the market's going down a lot, but that was definitely a different moment uh, that sometimes you could hear a pin drop, it felt like, at the New York Stock Exchange, just because um, nobody really knew what was happening or when it would end. Um, and you know, around that time, I had already done a little bit of coverage of the media industry. As I said, I was always interested in media. And um, uh, I, had, I had done some some coverage of that area while I was doing more broad market coverage of Bloomberg. And Bloomberg was starting up a, a technology channel, which was called Bloomberg West and is now called Bloomberg Technology. Uh, Emily Chang hosts that uh, daily. And um, they said, hey, you've, uh, you've covered some, some, some of the media industry. What about technology? Because as we had launched that show for Bloomberg uh, in San Francisco, at the time, it was unique. Um, there was no real daily broadcast television program um, that was um, airing out of San Francisco. And it was also a moment in time that a lot of people 
uh, we're a bit frustrated to say the least, Jake, with traditional um, ups and downs of the markets because the market was going down a lot more than it was going up. And uh, people didn't want to hear about that, but they were curious about all these bright lights coming from Silicon Valley. So I packed up from New York with my wife, Caroline, and we went out uh, with our young, our, 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 our oldest daughter at that time uh, from New York to San Francisco. Uh, and that was an exciting moment. There were a lot of the companies that are now the juggernauts that were big, but getting bigger and having milestone moments covered the Facebook IPO, the Twitter IPO, some big Apple events, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, ended up moving to Los Angeles as we continued to cover the, the intersection of media and technology for Bloomberg. Um, had an opportunity to work at ABC News, uh, which was really my first full experience into more broader news. So I'd cover whatever was happening west in the Mississippi, in LA sometimes, as a correspondent, they just make you keep uh, a bag of stuff that gets you ready if there's a fire and they've got to send you to that, um, uh, uh, forest fires, et cetera. And so got to know the, the more traditional news business because I'd spent so much time in, 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 in business news over the years, uh, but also had a chance to um, flex some entrepreneurial muscles a little bit as well. Um, because I had... Um, covered companies like Disney, for example, and ABC News is, is, is part of, uh, of Disney. Um, ABC had acquired Maker Studios, uh, which was a obviously one of the early players in trying to create a, a talent network through YouTube. Um, and they were thinking about different ways through which they might be able to bring those two worlds together, traditional broadcast and the YouTube generation. And so I got to work a little bit with the groups there and think about what news would look like in a YouTube world. Um, around that same time, live streaming was starting to take off and there were apps like Meerkat that were creating some curiosity. And then uh, Periscope had launched um, under Twitter and I decided I would jump on that. I was always interested in trying new areas of media and technology and actually set out to start building something a little bit bigger. Some of it was rooted in news. So I'd go out and cover news on Periscope, but um, not unlike sort of the maker model started to develop the idea of, well, could you, could you program uh, on Periscope the way that we program on traditional television? So obviously, you know, the world of apps and technology we live in today allows us to do things very differently. But since my sort of traditional upbringing in industry comes from TV. A lot of times I think about the parallels from that world. So started to do that and, um, and then had an opportunity to come back to Canada um, where to your earlier point, um, I work now with, uh, uh, basically it's Bloomberg in Canada. It's called BNM Bloomberg. And I do a morning show here. And I do an afternoon show, which, uh, which airs around the world for Bloomberg called Bloomberg Markets. Uh, and I, I get to do the news work too. And I get to have a say in some of the digital stuff we do, which is exciting. And then yes, you're right. I do some of the social media stuff too, which is which is very fun um, and, a, and a great learning experience every day. So that kind of summarizes the journey. Um, and I'm happy to go wherever you want to go from there. Yeah, no, it's an awesome story. And I appreciate you sharing it. Um, it's interesting, some of the turns you've taken along the way. Uh, let's go into one of the things you brought up more on the tail end, which was like, you know, it's pretty evident that you enjoy experimenting with these new um, media or social media platforms. And you mentioned like Periscope and 
considering, you know, what could it be like to do something that's maybe resembles more of traditional TV programming, but on this new platform, can you talk, like, can you, can you explain a little bit more about sort of like what you had in mind there? And, and the context is that for me, like I, I've always, you know, I started this podcast about a couple of years ago and, um, my sense is that even though it seems like everyone and their mother has a podcast these days, I feel like it's extremely early still in podcasting and in audio in general. Like we only had, you know, it was only popular to wear like headphones on the move or, you know, at your desk or whatever in the last, what, decade or two basically. And then podcast has been similar, like a decade or 12 years or something. And uh, it seems like pretty raw and like just basic in the format, like, you know, I send you a, 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 you know, video conferencing invite, you accept, and we're doing a one-on-one -on -one interview and I love them. I listen to podcasts all the time and I love recording them, but it just seems like there's a lot of room for improvement. Even the most popular ones in the world, like Rogan, um, you know, it's just two guys sitting at a desk and there's like a couple of different angles of camera and like, you're just watching these guys at the desk. I think there's lots of room for innovation in podcasting. And I'm curious, like, I think Periscope was correct me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of like a live interactive um, sort of uh, video conferencing type of thing. Maybe it was audio only. I'm not really sure. But if you could talk about like what you had in mind for how that could develop and if you're seeing anything that's along those lines today or how you think about all that. For sure. Well, there's a lot of threads there. Let's dive into them. Um, I agree with you. These are the early days of podcasting still. And I think that it is, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir both with you and your listeners, but it has opened the door to a different kind of conversation. And by the way, I'll draw, um, or I'll sort of I'll bring it back to traditional television. One of the challenges that I have felt growing up in more traditional media is, uh, let's say, you know, we have an opportunity to speak to a newsmaker. You've had recently Brian Armstrong, for example, on your podcast. Um, when we're doing a live television interview, um, that is what we are presenting to the audience at that single moment. So some people are tuning in for that. Some were wondering if we'd be showing something else. Uh, it is a somewhat different experience for the audience than people who have become familiar with your podcast. They can know in advance what they're choosing to listen to. So I think the, the very nature of just delivering content through, um, uh, one lane, which is what television ultimately does, uh, means that there's only so much you can get to. Uh, and it gets even more complicated when we're talking about, let's say, public companies, right? Because there's a lot of motivating factors on what we're going to ask this person in whatever time we might have, five or seven minutes. So it's a very different experience for someone who is tuning in and watching a traditional business media interview with Brian Armstrong versus what you were able to get into him with him in, in your recent podcast. And it, it then opens up the door to a question of well, what is it that people actually want uh, in interviews? And so I think that's why podcasts have really helped us explore that in a bigger way. And I would agree with you that there's a lot further we can go. And, um, you know, since I cover a lot of these companies too, I mean, take Spotify as a platform, which is very interested in continuing to see video growth. Um, so video and podcasting, where that goes, what it looks like, what it feels like, 
you know, we will see. Um, you asked about Periscope. I mean, Periscope ultimately was a live streaming app. And it, I, I think, you know, along with um, the, what, what started as the Meerkat app, um, you know, these were, these were a couple of the first successful uh, live streaming apps because the technology um, had gotten far enough along that you could actually have a rewarding experience. I, you know, I like to say, and I think a lot of people obviously got hooked on podcasts during the pandemic, but I think it also helped that you had products like, let's say, AirPods, right? Just to your point about not being tethered to the desk, that in many ways has allowed podcasts to, to grow and grow and grow. Well, same thing is true with going live on your phone. You need a phone that is powerful enough to do that. Um, and um, so those were some of the you know early um, um, players in that market. Um, you know, I think the challenge for for Periscope um, was not unlike the challenge that its parent company Twitter had with something like Vine, which is all of a sudden if you're in a whole bunch of different areas, uh, do you lose focus? Um, especially when you've got other players that are going to you know jump into that world too. And so now it feels like live streaming becomes um, an add-on feature and we we know that exists within the world of instagram and tiktok but you know really got started there um and i think that um i think that one of the reasons that i i like to um experiment um outside of what i'm i'm doing for a, for a good chunk of my day in television is because you know Audiences are audiences. Um, it's actually something I've always felt pretty passionately about. I mean, it didn't start this way. You have to get onto platforms and see what works and what doesn't work. But um, I don't necessarily always talk on, let's say, Twitter or TikTok about what uh, I'm covering on television because we know a little bit about those audiences. We know what they're interested in, and it is uh, it is paramount if you want to keep those people engaged in that more traditional way, it's really helpful to try to give them what they want. Um, social media has allowed us to get um, better metrics uh, individually. So, you know, I can't necessarily know what resonated the most uh, per minute on television, the way that I get that instant feedback on social media. Um, but we know enough to know how to program. Um, and so, you know, I have... I have determined, and I think a lot of people have determined that every platform or every channel, however you want to describe it, is different. Uh, and you have to be respectful of that. Um, and that is true of, you know, you learning through all your podcasts, what resonates with your audience, what you're getting feedback on, and then subsequently you iterate on that. Uh, it sometimes drives me crazy when we, you know, when something is successful in one place and then people try to then move content over to another platform, uh, it just feels like a dilutive um, experience to me. Um, sometimes it's good. I mean, look, you can cross promote and all those great things. And there is a certain value there. But at the end of the day, these are audiences. They're all audiences. They're different audiences. They're fragmented audiences. And if you're going to be there and you enjoy the process of creating content, um, I think you owe it to those people and yourself to 
to try to figure out what works the best in that particular place. And, um, and, you know, having grown up in, in basically startup cable channels, um, a lot of what I've always done is sort of, okay, we're starting from scratch. What is it that's new here? What is what's different? You know, what, how is it different? Um, and it's, it's, it's very rewarding to me personally. And especially since I'm, you know, now um, the older guy in the room, when it comes to covering the financial markets, um, I really get energized um, by trying to address what the next generation of investors is interested in. Um, and, and so that, that, that's pretty powerful to me. I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. I think this, what you mentioned about, you know, um, going across, like people sometimes post the same content across multiple different platforms. And it's just like very obvious that, you know, this thing that you originally posted on Instagram and then tried to like turn it into a tweet, it just like doesn't really work on Twitter. And it's like very easy to sort of identify like, oh, this this is like sort of off. But it's a little bit harder for me at least to sort of understand intuitively what makes a platform what it is and what the ideal, you know, um, content basically is for that platform and how to um, sort of adjust yourself and the way that you naturally produce content or communicate with people to sort of the specificities of the given platform. And I think you've just been like tremendous at this, you know, from TV and then, you know, to Twitter where, you know, it's very different from what you do on TV. First of all, it's, you know, text rather than verbal. And um, you've got this like very distinctive, uh, I'd say like brand maybe isn't the right word, but like I, I know when I see one of your tweets, like it's very distinctive from other tweets that I see. And maybe I'll see, one once in a while that sort of reminds me of one of yours, but I'm like, that's, that's John's type of tweet. Uh, and then on like, you know, TikTok, you're doing something like totally different. Um, and there's, you know, common themes throughout, like, for example, you might be talking about various things in the market and like this ongoing bear cycle that we're in right now and things like this, but you're delivering the information in almost entirely different ways. Um, and then the information itself is, I'd say overlapping, but not the same. It's like a Venn diagram, probably, if you compare, you know, your TV to your Twitter to your TikTok. And so I'm curious, like when you get on these new platforms, how do you, I don't know if this is, you know, maybe it's an overly difficult question to answer, but how do you go about like, um, sort of isolating what, what makes a platform, what it is and what people want there. You can obviously see how, like how your tweets do and which ones are more popular and sort of iterate based on that. But is there some sort of like intuition that you you find when you go on these platforms or some sort of um, systematic approach that you take to sort of uh, isolating what's important? It's a great question. Um, I think that a lot of what I'm doing is still rooted in some of my learnings from the traditional TV world where most of the time, let's say, you know, it's an average day and you think about people tuning in to TV because they want to know what's going on uh, and you owe them that respect of giving them that. But then there's always a little bit of wiggle room to do something else. Um, and that's where you, you know, can flex your creativity muscles. Uh, I try to do the same thing with social media. I mean, with Twitter, that was in many ways like a uh, an iterative process for 
a very long time, probably a decade. I mean, I've told the story before that, um, I mean, one of the reasons I've, I've stuck largely to technology is because that's where I first really found my groove with, uh, with an audience. I was covering technology for Bloomberg uh, in San Francisco. Um, part of the initial evolution for me was that, um, you know, I have to, I have to cover quarterly earnings. Uh, and of course, with these fast growing companies, uh, sometimes the growth is astounding. It's, it's hard to sum it up. Uh, and uh, not only that, um, there's this horrible game that Wall Street plays where you talk about performance versus expectations. And I know why it exists, um, but a lot of times you lose the plot in talking about, you know, companies like Google's parent Alphabet or uh, Facebook's parent Meta or Twitter or Amazon reporting such and such a number, but the street was expecting that. Um, and it kind of loses um, the fact that in many cases, we're talking about businesses that really not that long ago were started by some young, ambitious people and have now grown into these juggernauts year over year growing their uh, their financials. Um, and so how do you show that? And so I, I sort of, I, I started experimenting with data to do that, you know, just the showing the, the raw numbers. Um, and, um, and, and that was something that really resonated with people. And then it, it, it gave me energy uh, to continue. And then as the platform itself, you know, we talked briefly there about how podcasting is going to continue to evolve and that we'll undoubtedly see more and more add-ons to the podcast experience and video. Um, obviously, these platforms are constantly looking for ways to engage. You know, everybody right now is talking about, you know, what Elon Musk will do with Twitter. Um, and, you know, a lot of roads point to, well, at least more, more ways to keep people engaged on the platform. And, and, and as, as Twitter got um, older and found a way to uh, allow you to incorporate more, more pictures, more video, um, it was changing. And so you kind of had to change with it. So going back to my first point there about TV, you know, you know a lot about what you're going to do each day, but there's also room to try new things. And so that's, that's kind of where it goes for me is, 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 is try to try to deliver for people, but also try something new uh, within that. I think the other thing too, is having covered at least the financial markets for for like two decades. Um, I've always had a beef with the way Wall Street speaks to the world. Um, and we're even seeing that frustration play out right now. I've never really understood outside of it, it, it helps to sort of create a barrier to entry or maybe a wall between the professional uh, and the retail crowd. But I've never understood why we have to speak the way we do. Um, in other words, why we have to absorb this language that is so prevalent on Wall Street on how we talk about things. Um, it's weird to me. It's not natural. It doesn't really exist anywhere. I would never go to a gathering or a party and use a lot of the terminology that sort of dominates Wall Street Monday to Friday. And so I really have enjoyed, you know, whether it's learning about business through your podcast or other podcasts or, you know, learning what TikTok forces you to do, which is to get to the heart of the matter. And there's some good and bad that comes from that. But talking in circles without just sort of getting to the heart of something 
is a frustrating process. And so I think that at least business or finance or financial markets has been a, a wonderful playground uh, to, um, to uh, explore the evolution of communication through um, through all these new platforms. I mean, that is, that is amazing. And I, I like every day I'm, I'm excited to try that because I think I, I feel like I'm still fighting against a system that, that, that ultimately puts information out into the world. That's, that's just too complex for people. So I think a lot about that when I'm, you know, in the, in making television every day. And I think about it when I'm, when I'm making uh, content for, for other platforms too. Yeah, it's it's always difficult with um, any discipline. I think where there's like a um, a specific language within the industry, finance being one, and you know there's plenty of others. A given field of science or whatever it might be, um, and it's of course you know natural that in some cases you, you sort of need a word to describe a concept that might be somewhat unique to the um, the discipline. But it makes it just a lot more harder to grasp, like. In you know, in finance, for example, like depreciation or something, right? Like it's not really a word that people use day to day, but you know, it's useful for accounting and it's like a fairly simple concept, like something becomes less valuable over time. But, you know, all this shorthand and acronyms and everything like that, like EBITDA, you know, people eyes gloss over or whatever and no one knows what you're talking about anymore. So I agree with you, like these finance in particular, which is extremely important and fundamental for, you know, this is like, we're not talking about something that is just one particular path that you can go down for your career or something like, which of course you can in finance, but it's something, you know, everyone needs to have some responsibility for their finances and whatnot. And to abstract a lot of it through this, you know, language that not everyone can really understand fully is, um, you know, the more you can break that down in simple terms, I think is the better, the better it is. And um, so, I mean, one of the things that I've, like, I think about your Twitter feed, for example, and the thing, you know, I think of like statistics and, and numbers and facts, like you said, and I think of like raw, you know, um, just direct like data, you know, raw from the sources, like old videos of tech founders or investors or, or things like this. Um, there's not a lot of like color, uh, and I'm sure, you know, this is different from, I'm sure what you you sort of do and and in some ways you know have to do on on TV and the like, but um, on Twitter like you're very fact based and it's it's numbers and it's um, the sources themselves and things like this and you're not putting a lot of opinion on it and I think it's really refreshing and maybe this is why a lot of people enjoy it. It's part of why I enjoy it certainly is because you know you're not really taking a stance. You're just saying you know here are the numbers or here's you know Jeff Bezos talking about something and. 1999 or something like that and take it for what it is and it's just like a very interesting piece of information to consume uh, at least in my view and it's refreshing i think because a lot of the media these days that sort of professes itself as factual and purely informational and and the truth and whatnot is in fact you know very opinionated and um it's sort of it's frustrating for me when i when i see that because it's like well you know, this is a, an opinion just as a fact. I'm curious if you have thoughts from, you know, within the industry, you're, you're both on the traditional media side and of course, the active on the digital media side, social media. Um, how, how have you seen the, the industry? I mean, this is a larger question, I guess, but 
have you seen these industries interact over the last 25 years? You've been involved with traditional media and, and more recently over the last decade or so, social media. And uh, if you could speak sort of specifically to that point on, you know, um, dressing, dressing opinions as facts and things like this, um, do you have any sort of frustrations from inside traditional media about this type of thing? Well, um, a lot of a lot of how I approach this comes from that that traditional world. And by the way, I think for for both of us, EBITDA and de- depreciation are fertile ground. We let's 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 rip that one open one of these days, Jake. But um, uh, you know, I I still see my 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 job every day as one where I'm gonna I'm gonna sit in the middle and I am gonna try to give people the information and let them uh, reach a conclusion about that. Um, I think that um, without going too deeply into the evolution of cable news, um, I think it is very clear at this point that there was a strong temptation for various outlets to um, uh, pick more of a lane. And whether that was... um, financially motivated, whether it was motivated just in terms of um, growing audience, um, whether it was a way to stand out or build a new brand, uh, whatever started that, um, we've got it now. And obviously, it is intertwined with social media as well, right? So, I mean, are there certain people who like to engage with loud um, content from this side or that side? Absolutely. Are there people that uh, focus on producing content that is very loud on this side or that side with the full intent of sparking a reaction or playing to their side, quote unquote, or the other side or whatever it may be? Yeah, um, that is the temptation. It's the, it's the same temptation, I think, in traditional television as it is for social media. And it's complicated because once you're there, um, it's um, it's uh, it's pretty established. Now, I, I've traditionally worked in this world. Let's sort of use business news as an example of that. Um, there's been a there's been an interesting evolution there in the sense that in the past you would have had almost exclusively people reporting on the financial news. Now I'm going back. A long time, two decades here, and then you would uh, increasingly introduce, um, um, you know, guests that maybe had a little bit more opinion, and then maybe those guests resonated so much with audiences that they would get their own show. And all of a sudden, you've got a show where people are talking about things they like or or dislike. Um, and then all of a sudden, you're you're kind of into new waters because I think that for the audience. While, you know, management of these entities might be able to differentiate between, well, this is this this person's a reporter and this person's a commentator. I don't know that audiences really make that distinction. Uh, the ones that are really engaged probably do, but I, I've never really made any assumptions. So it starts to get a little bit confusing. Like, what are you? Um, but just to go back to to what you were saying, I found. I mean, what started for me is numbers and data, um, tweets, I guess. I found it was a good way to tell a story 
on a relatively restricted platform, just in terms of how much you can put out without having to feel as if I'm, you know, uh, in favor of something or against something. Cause I just never really saw that as my role, but I thought, I think people would appreciate seeing this. Um, and as the platforms, like we talked about the evolution of, of, Twitter, etc., and you can add more photos, you can add more video, whatever. Um, you know, I think there was a, there was a continued opportunity to tell those stories, um, and and also to introduce what, at least for me, felt like something a little bit more positive in what is what is oftentimes a, a somewhat negative environment. So when when we go back to sort of the loud voices on this side or that side. Um, I think sometimes it kind of leads us into a darker place. And what I've been um, really pleased by is, um, you know, in, in, in trying to just talk about how something evolved without, you know, having a strong opinion on it. I think it's been able to inspire people um, in, in similar ways that, that podcasts when you get to hear the full story of one of the entrepreneurs that you've spoken to, um, or even you sharing your own story, like I think that it just gives people information and knowledge, which they can then just interpret however they want. Um, you know, there's room for everything, but that's 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 kind of what was important to me was to find a way to communicate that still is a parallel to what we that we've traditionally done in, in, in news, which is we give you the news. We don't, you know, we're not, we're not going to give you as much opinion or we're not going to give you any opinion. And, um, you know, I, I, I know that, I know that traditional TV audiences still do very much appreciate that. Um, and I, I think I've had the ability to connect with, with, with certain people online that, uh, that like that as well. Uh, but you also run into people that are so accustomed to somebody stating an opinion in 15 seconds that if you don't share an opinion, some people ask you, what's your opinion? Um, you know, and, uh, you know, that's that's just kind of the world we live in. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I think, you know, I mentioned the fact that your feed and everything is is feels much more fact-based than uh and of course you've got all these people now with like fact checking and things like this and i'm not talking about anything like that it's just you know it's numbers it's videos like i said these are things that they just are what they are it's not like you have you don't need a fact checker like you check the numbers and the quarterly earnings or whatever and, and they just are what they are um and so you know that's super refreshing but the other thing you brought up which i think about as well is that there's just like this, it seems to me, an, an inherent optimism about a lot of the stuff that you focus on. Um, you know, you, you post, for example, a lot about, um, you know, some of the great companies that we have in the world today and some of the great founders that we've had over the last, um, you know, couple of decades, whether it's Apple and Steve Jobs or Amazon and Bezos or Google or Tesla or any of Elon's companies. Um, and you sort of depict like a lot of what you do, which I, I think is also really interesting is you go on your Twitter feed and, um, you know, everything's sort of current and like quarter of the people are talking about like the same thing that happened today or yesterday. And, uh, a lot of what you put out is timeless in a sense, or 
at least time spanning. It's like, you know, here's the bear market that we're in today. And here's how, you know, the hiking of interest rates over the last few months has compared to previous cycles of hiking interest rates in, you know, 2000 and whatever, and 1990, whatever. And um, there's like a, a historical overlay, I think, on a lot of what you do. And so anyway, one of the things that that I like a lot as well is like you go sort of early on into um, sort of the, the journey of some of these founders that have built these amazing companies before they were great. And it starts to just sort of feel like sort of a hero like journey and like a hero's epic. And that's not something that is really talked about or, you know, on the news or shared very often. It's sort of like the majority of the founder's journey is, you know, Amazon.bomb and oh Zuckerberg changing the name to Meta and like that's never gonna work. The VR is never gonna work, et cetera. And then, you know, so, and some stuff fails, obviously, but those two examples thus far at least have been, you know, insane successes. And there's no like, you know, oh, we, we should have been more optimistic early. It's just sort of like, oh, let's move on. And, you know, the next founder is here to be doubted and, and whatnot. Uh, and of course, there's, you know, there's positive press as well. And especially like within the technology community, there's lots of support from fellow founders and people who have come before them and investors and things like that. But um, nonetheless, it's just very refreshing to, to see that from you. Um, what sort of drove you, I guess, to... I don't know. Do you think about some of these things that you're posting as, as telling the, um, the founder story sort of as like a heroic thing or what gave you that perspective and maybe like respect for these people who just against all odds have built these incredible companies over basically the course of your career? I think I'm, I'm thinking more about the people who see the content than the people who I'm shedding light on. Um, I don't think it's my end goal to try to make people look like heroes. Um, uh, you know, there's a couple of things. First of all, I already talked about my own frustrations with the Wall Street narrative. You know, the, 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 the short termism that um, dominates uh, the world of money. And um, I understand why it exists. However, having covered many different cycles in the markets, um, I think sometimes it leads people astray. You know, we're going to keep having a conversation around the markets um, endlessly uh, for this next year, and we don't know where things are going, and it could get, you know, more complicated, but there are still plenty of stats out there that, that you know, tell people that, you know, if you get out of the market um, because you're worried or you're fearful. Um, and you, when, when you do come back into the market, you know, can you be uh, as successful as someone who sort of wrote it all out? Um, so I think what I do like to do is be part of a conversation that's already taking place. And the cool thing I think about social media today is it, it allows us to have simultaneous conversations. You know, I can talk about something that is somewhat related to what we're already talking about right now, but maybe just put it in another light. And hopefully I don't have to write a long essay to sort of 
bring that other perspective to the table. I think the biggest thing though, Jake, is my frustration with fear. Fear is constantly present in our lives. I have fears. I feel that everyone is battling their own fears. Um, we consume so much fear and it frustrates me. And so the founders that you highlighted that I might share their story, I just think it's a helpful gauge for people to remember that sometimes other people faced hurdles and they got through it. There are a lot of people that, you know, the stats will tell you, oh gosh, it, it didn't work out or you shouldn't do this. But the beauty of us getting more and more connected over time is while there is this sort of negative energy that you can choose to tap into, you can also tap into a really motivational, uh, inspirational um, uh, group of people around the world. And, um, and I think those founder journeys are just a small reminder to people that they had hurdles too, they had fears, and they, they continued on, you know, this is going to be, you know, you've, you've covered the world of digital currencies, uh, and the road ahead for blockchain and crypto. And how can, how can we go from such a deep dynamic conversation a year ago, to now just sort of being flooded by fear? And I feel pretty confident that there are some really exciting things that are still happening in that area that we'll be talking about in 10 years or 20 years when we look back. And so I just like to, I just like to provide my reminders because, you know, as a member of the media and covering the ups and downs in the moment, we just, we just lose some of the story when we're focused on the short term. So I, I, I don't want to skip the short term. I spend a lot of time focusing on the short term, but I also think that other context is needed because otherwise what would we do with our lives? I mean, we, you know, we just sit around and not dream and not try new things. And, you know, I wouldn't jump on social media platforms that people would say, why are you going out and doing that? Or you wouldn't have launched your podcast or someone listening right now who's been working on something wouldn't keep pushing ahead. I mean, that's what we do. We push ahead. And, um, you know, I'm in the communication game. And I think as, as we evolve, you know, one of the biggest things we can do to help our our society is to just keep learning, keep iterating, pass on information. And, um, and I'd rather, I'd rather be in the inspirational camp than not. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting answer. I, I did not, um, did not foresee that, like just to, to root everything back to frustration with the prevalence of fear in the world and to try to shed more light on like inspiring stories and things like that. I, you know, it makes sense in retrospect, but just a very interesting way of thinking about everything. So really enjoyed that. Um, you know, part of, uh, I'll try to uh, shamelessly transition a little bit here for a final question. Part of my job as, you know, the host of this podcast, I think is to 
try to draw answers just like that. Um, and you never know what exactly is going to get you there. Um, and I certainly don't really, you know, I have some things that some principles I keep in mind and things like this, but um, there's, you know, I don't have a formula or anything like that. I don't follow a script. There's no real hard and fast rules, but you've been doing this for a lot longer than I have on the other side of the microphone, being the interviewer yourself. And, um, you know, you've talked to amazing investors and businessmen and, uh, you know, other people like Kobe Bryant as well. Um, what are, you know, I, I guess two-part question here to, to close things out. If you could talk about one or, or two of the most memorable interviews you've done, I, I'd be curious to hear that just because the sheer magnet, you know, the quantity that you've done is just basically insane to me. I've done, you know, this is going to be episode number a hundred and something, uh, a hundred and I don't know, 18 maybe. And, uh, I should probably know that number, but, uh, but it's a very small number compared to uh, thousands that you've done over your career. So I'm curious, you know, what's, what's one of the one or two of the more memorable ones. And then secondarily to that, are there any principles you've uh, come across or kept in mind over the year for how to really conduct a, a great interview or, or a great conversation? Well, um, thanks for the opportunity to, to take on that two-parter um, with the first part with the interviews I think you're right. It's hard to, it's hard to get, you know, this one or that one as, as the best. You did mention Kobe. I had, I had a chance to interview Kobe a couple of times uh, during my time in Los Angeles. Um, And, you know, I sometimes share a moment that he talked about in one of our interviews when he had gone to Apple's campus for the day to, um, to spend some time with Johnny Ive. And um, I've always found that to be um, a helpful uh, piece of content to, to share with people. Uh, it's not unlike, you know, even this week, um, some, some content that I had shared, Steve Jobs talking about how he used to, you know, pick up the phone uh, to get started. You won't get anywhere unless you, you, you literally pick up the phone and ask someone if they would help you, or, you know got him got him a job at HP back in the day um, but what I loved about that was it it for me unlocked this side of Kobe that I hadn't had a big opportunity to see now mind you you know this is a few years back now we get to see especially with um, celebrities or athletes or entertainers that are you know very interested in business and I think many are today, but you get to see a side of them that we used to see less when the majority of the interviews they did were tied to whatever they're doing. So a sports interview felt like a sports interview, or if they had some kind of product, shoe launch, that kind of stuff, you know, you're sort of, you're locked into those questions. The same way, you know, if, uh, you know, someone from Hollywood is doing a film junket, you, you ultimately, you know, hear a few questions about the film and and that's cool but it doesn't really kind of unlock the person behind and that motivation and i do think we now live in an era where you can see a lot more of that right between the two of us we could probably name dozens of people who you know what they're all about even if they've got a day job we've learned a lot about what motivates them but that was a really good one for me just because kobe literally does pick up the phone well he would pick up the phone and um, he would cold call people 
um, they might be famous people. He might not know them, but he would quite literally just call to pick their brain. And I thought that was amazing. You know, it's sad that we lost him because uh, he was gearing up for a really exciting next chapter of his life. And uh, what a motivated person. Um, you know, I think I literally just did an interview today with a Canadian entrepreneur by the name of Jimmy Pattison. Uh, Jimmy um, runs one of the largest companies uh, in Canada. And I've gotten to know him over the years. And uh, he started with a single car dealership and, um, and now has a massive empire that spans the car industry, media, forestry, you name it. Um, but the thing about Jimmy is he's um, 94 years old. He uh, celebrated his 94th birthday on October 1st. And I, I always am curious about these motivational factors, you know, and you talked, we were talking a little bit about optimism. I mean, here's a guy who's an eternal optimist, you know, he's excited to get up and keep going every day. He's at an age where he has, uh, he has earned the right uh, through all the hard work and success he's had to step back, but he doesn't because it's who, who he is. So I love when we can unearth some of that. You know, because I get a chance to do that sometimes. Other times we're we're talking about, you know, more of the specifics that are happening in the moment. So those are, I guess, a couple examples, very different. Um, in terms of some of the, the rules of the road, at least with, with interviews, um, and I have to say, like, I really enjoy a lot of your interviews and your style. I mean, that's the thing about podcasting. We're flooded with podcast options now. And I think the ones that stand out, um, it has a lot to do with, especially ones that are based on guests. Uh, it, it has a lot to do with how the conversation unfolds and the kinds of questions that people ask. Uh, the biggest single lesson I would have for anyone who's continuing down this path is to learn how to listen. Now, in television, admittedly, because when I started my career, I didn't know that I was going to be in front of the cameras. I just, I thought media was cool and I had this job and, you know, I got a chance to do it. Um, so getting used to all the stuff that goes into an interview um, or just being, let's say on television, right? The lights and all that kind of stuff. For me, at least, uh, it took time for all that to melt away, for you to sort of get so comfortable that you could actually be in the moment. But once you're in that moment, I think you have a responsibility to listen because uh, you can prepare, you can have a list of questions, but like a conversation is a conversation. So if it goes in one direction, the same way our podcast has gone in a few different directions, the fact that you're listening and sort of continuing down that that road, I think, I think it helps. Again, because we, we've been talking about the person who is on the other end of this, you know, if, if, if somebody says something and the thought isn't quite finished or it's just starting to percolate and we move on to something else, um, it just feels like a missed opportunity. Um, and, uh, and definitely in traditional television, it does, especially there's just a lot of moving parts, especially if it's live or we're, you know, up against a, a commercial break. There's a lot of different variables that impact how a conversation goes. But I find 
learning how to listen. So long as you are listening to what someone is saying, it does wonders. You know, um, it's a sign of respect. It helps to, you know, bring out the best in the conversation. And um, so that's that's my single strongest piece of advice I would give to anyone who, you know, is a fan of your podcast. Maybe they're doing their own podcast or or even just in our in our lives. Like, you know, I we're busy, but if you listen, I think I think the the net result is a positive one. All right. So first of all, um, thank you very much. I, I very much appreciate the uh, the compliment and just the fact that you've listened to an episode or or you know many episodes. It's uh, not every guest takes the time to to do that. So I, I very much appreciate it. Um, and I, I love your advice because it's something that I've thought about quite a lot since getting started. And to your point, which I thought was a great one, like in the beginning, you know, you're interviewing so and so person, you're sort of nervous and you haven't done this before. And, um, it's challenging to be in the moment, like you said, and, uh, that's sort of a prerequisite for really listening and, um, you know, not thinking about oh, what's next or where am I going to go with this or whatever it might be. Uh, and there's some balance too, because, you know, not having anything prepared, I think would probably not go as well as to, to, do a lot of preparation. I think I probably tend to over-prepare, but I try to sort of throw everything out at the beginning to, to the extent, you know, to some extent, as, as much as I can to be able to just be there and, and go with the flow of the conversation. But there's also those benefits to having sort of a few ideas in advance of, you know, you consume a lot of the content or in my case, like I just do deep diligence on whoever the guest is and then have an idea of like, oh, these might be a few interesting directions to go with the conversation. So it's it's a very interesting balance and um, I've heard Rogan describe it as it's comparable to like a dance almost. And I think that's a pretty good analogy that, that I liked where, um, you know, you have to, you definitely want to be in the moment you definitely want to listen, but you also want to prepare. And it's that sort of mix between um, plan and spontaneity that I think can often make a great result. Um, at least that's what I've found to date. So, um, anyway, we'll, we'll look forward to, uh, continuing to, to get better and to, uh, to work on all this, but, um, real pleasure talking to you today, John. And, uh, thank you again very much for, for taking the time. I know we're a couple minutes past the scheduled block, but, uh, again, very much appreciate it and, uh, great talking with you. Thank you for coming on. Where can people go and, uh, you know, follow up with, with you, where do you want to send them to the Twitter or, or wherever? Yeah. You can find me on Twitter and TikTok, uh, John Ehrlichman on Bloomberg, um, Bloomberg Markets, 1.30 Eastern Time, uh, Monday to Friday. And I agree, Jake, It's it's been a great dance. I've enjoyed it myself. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. 